Hi everyone, and welcome back to Hits 21, where me, Rob, me, Andy, and me, Lizzie, all look back at every single UK number one of the 21st century from January 2000 right through to the present day. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us over on Twitter. We are at Hits21UK, that is at Hits21UK, and you can email us too. Send it on over to hits21podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us again. Like our recent previous episodes, we're going to be looking back at some number one singles from the year 2002. This time we'll be covering the period from the 10th of November through to the 7th of December. So we're almost at the, uh, the Race for Christmas number one and then into 2003. Looking back to last week, before we get ahead to this week, um, the poll winner, and it only just uh, was Heaven by DJ Sammy featuring Yanu and Doe. Last Ketchup were very close though. Oh wow. They were so, so tight on yeah. the Twitter poll, and in the end, the um, the Spotify poll was what took Heaven over the line, but it was very, very close, almost neck and neck for quite a yeah. lot of the week. That's the most exciting one we've had, I think. I've been following it intently through the weekend. Yeah. Me and yeah, my husband same. are in different camps. I'm obviously Team Heaven, from what you heard last week, and my husband is very much Team Ketchup, and he's <laughs> been rooting for it. I was thinking about making dummy accounts to brigade the poll, which I trust that you didn't <laughs> no. do, but yeah. <laughs> um, do you know, we've had such lovely like interactions from people about Heaven, specifically. Um, it seems that it touched a nerve with a lot of people too. Um, so it's not just us, um, which was nice to know. Yeah. Um, something else that happened this week um, was that part of a little interview that we did uh, went out on the Radio Times website. Um, so we may as well announce it. I think it's not going to be for another two or three weeks yet on the show. Um, but the excerpts that were published in radio, uh, in, uh, on the Radio Times website were from our interview with a guy named Brian Capron, yeah. who's an actor who's probably most famous to most of our listeners for playing none other than serial killer Richard Hillman in Coronation Street. Um, this month, in fact, this week that we're recording, uh, it's 20 years since he was killed off on the show. Um, everybody knows who Richard, uh, Richard Hillman is, who uh, watched Coronation Street back then. Uh, you don't really need uh, much of an introduction for him. But, um, yeah, we're going to be interviewing him. Well, we have interviewed him. And the episode in which we interviewed him will go out af- just after our first episode of 2003. So we'll do next week's episode, then the Christmas episode, and then it will go out alongside um, our first episode for 2003. Um, it is going to be a separate episode, but I'll put them out on the same day. Um, I don't know about you guys, but like looking back on that interview, I thought it was, I thought it was great. He was so lovely. Brian was so nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like grew up on the Richard Hillman era of Corrie. So he was like, he is like a huge star for me as I'm sure he Mm -hmm. is for many of our listeners. And, um, I was not sure what to expect. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners might not be knowing what to expect and thinking, oh, is that episode worth it? Trust me, it's worth it. It really is. We had the best time talking to him. Um, it, yeah, just really, a really, really lovely person, a really great guest to have on the show. So if Brian is listening, thank you so much. Um, yeah, it was great. Yeah, no, it really was. 
Um, yeah, like I say, that'll be out in a couple of weeks. We talked to him about, I don't know, Busted, that Wanna Die song, the episodes of Corey that he was on, how Richard's storyline ended up going the way that it did. And we also got his uh, thoughts on Beautiful by Christina Aguilera, which was number one the day that he was killed on uh, on Coronation Street. We had to get something topical and relate it back to our podcast, so <laughs> that's what we did. <laughs> Okay, on to this week's episode, and as always, we're going to give you some news headlines from around the time that the songs in this week's episode were number one. Moore's murderer Myra Hindley dies age 60 after being hospitalised following a heart attack. Hindley, in the 37th year of her life sentence at the time of her death, had been appealing her sentence for the last decade, but oh well. Mm, yes, oh well. Bye. At the same time, Home Secretary David Blunkett rules that four convicted murderers should spend at least 50 years in prison before being considered for parole. The ruling comes two days before politicians in England and Wales lose their power to set minimum terms on life sentence prisoners. And the Fire Brigade's union votes to strike in an attempt to secure better salaries, marking the first nationwide strike by firefighters since 1977. The FBU eventually accepted a 16% pay rise over three years, which was significantly less than their original request. The films to hit the top of the UK box office during this period were as follows. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets for one week before Die Another Day begins a four-week reign at the top. Pierce Brosnan makes his final ever appearance as James Bond in Die Another Day. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Gareth Gates' Unchained Melody, which I'm sure we're all aware of, uh, for all of our <laughs> listeners, is, na- is named Record of the Year by ITV, while athlete Paula Radcliffe wins BBC Sports Personality of the Year. It's interesting with Record of the Year because we do a Record of the Year on this show, don't we? <laughs> for we our do. highest rating. And I'm wondering, are there going to be any years where it matches up? We haven't had any so far. and um, Surely I th- not. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that it won't match up this year. Unchained Melody is um, <laughs> decidedly not our record of the year so far. No. <laughs> but we'll see. Yeah. You never know. Some some creative vote rigging might get in the way. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and Girls Aloud are revealed as one of the winners of Popstars The Rivals, with five members confirmed to be forming the group. Cheryl Tweedy, Sarah Harding, Nadine Coyle, Nicola Roberts and Kimberly Walsh. In the male category, Anton Gordon, Matt Johnson, Daniel Pierce, Keith Semple, and Jamie Shaw are confirmed to have won, forming rival group One True Voice. And I'll tell you, one one group goes on to be legends, and the other group uh, were Girls Aloud. Of course, as we all know. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, that with the five names from Girls Aloud, it's like a proper roll call. It's like, yeah. Cheryl Cole, Sarah Harding, Nicola Roberts, and then with one true voice, it's just like, nope, I got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> not even one, no. <laughs> yeah, not all of them have Wikipedia pages, I'll put it that way. Oh, that's sad. Oh. Yeah. Andy, yeah. the album charts, how are they faring right now? It's a very quiet period on the album charts. I've only got two albums to talk to you about this week. Um, where we left off last week, One Love by Blue was at the top spot. Uh, which didn't produce any number one singles, uh, funnily enough, but it did have some big singles off that album. It was toppled at the top the very next week by Westlife with 
Unbreakable, The Greatest Hits, Volume 1, which was uh, obviously the single Unbreakable coincided with that album. But um, I've just got to say, I love, I absolutely love the goal of calling it Greatest Hits, Volume 1. Mm. <laughs> no. Isn't that great that they just that they did that? Like, yeah, there's going to be more. It's like, oh, boys. There's not one great hit on this one. So, you know. <laughs> never mind. Yeah, to but only has one week at number one before it is moved off the top spot by a really big album from this era, which I mentioned last week to sort of think about what you think it was, and you didn't get it last week. Haven't thought about it? I'm going to give you another guess. What do you think sees out the remainder of this year with six weeks at number one? I couldn't resist and looked it up, so I'm going to leave oh! it to Lizzie. Lizzie, have you got any ideas? Thank you for your honesty, Rob. Lizzie, have you yeah. got any ideas? Uh, I don't bloody know. Saint Anger by Metallica. It's, it's not that. Six weeks at number one. You never it's know. It's not that. It is Escapology by Robbie Williams. Of, yeah. course, of course. Which I think is one of those that like every household had at that time. I feel like it was oh, a yeah. sort of a mum's favourite album. Like everybody's mum yes. seemed yeah. to yeah. love Mama that. Yeah, love that album. Yeah, and it was actually like quite decent there were a lot of Robbie songs on it feel come undone something beautiful it was probably one of his better albums there uh, but that's been six weeks at number one taking us right through to the end of the year so that's all I've got to talk about in terms of albums for the rest of the year now it would go on to sell six times platinum and uh, yeah what a hit that was wow okay how uh, how are things in the US Lizzie how are they looking Well, as I mentioned last week, there are no new number one singles until February 2003, lucky you. But we do have a couple of albums to hit number one during this period. First up is the 8 Mile soundtrack, which of course features the current US number one, Lose Yourself. It went straight in at number one, staying there for two weeks and returning for two more weeks in early 2003. It eventually went six times platinum in the US and finished at number seven on the 2003 year-end list. To date, it's sold over 11 million copies worldwide. However, in the UK, compilation albums were excluded from the main album chart from January 1989 onwards. The 8 Mile soundtrack was classified as a compilation album for chart purposes and peaked at number one on the compilations chart, not (laughs) the main album's chart. Mm. So... After that, we've just got one more to mention. It's Jay-Z who scores his fifth US number one album with The Blueprint 2, The Gift and The Curse, which stayed at number one for one week and eventually went three times platinum in the US. However, in the UK, it only got as high as number 23, one place behind One Love by Blue. Oh, wow. Yeah. Truly a curse rather than a gift. (laughs) I've got I've got no issue with um, with Jay Z, but that is an absolutely awful album title. It's so so pretentious. It's terrible. Not one I of his better it. albums either. It's not. No, it's not terrible. I it's, think it's okay. Yeah. I think it's all right. I think it. You know. I mean, everybody knows um, Bonnie and Clyde two thousand three. I think. Yeah. Um, I yeah. Bit of a push at Excuse Me Miss, because that's got Pharrell Williams on the... Um, oh, it's done by the Neptunes, isn't it? But, um, yeah, I think it's... I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I always think that when rappers redo album titles, like, they, you know, when they try and, like, recapture something that they feel they've lost, and so they name their new album, like, oh, 
it's going to be called this. Like, you know, like Eminem did the Marshall Mathers LP2, and, um, like, there's this with the Blueprint 2, and you've got Raekwon, who did another um, Only Built for Cuban Links, and there's a few of those around, and I feel like this is one of those where it's, like, the Blueprint 2, and it's, like, you're putting a lot of expectation on this to be very, very good, and if it <laughs> if it lands underneath expectations, people are not going to be happy. Um but then, like, I seem to remember with this, there was the Blueprint 2, which was, like, 30 songs long. It was huge, wasn't it? It was, like, a big double album thing. And then he did another version of the album, which was called the Blueprint 2.1, which was, like, a condensed version of the album with the best songs from both sides of the album. It's very, very odd. It's a very strange decision to make. Um, it's, not e- it's not even yeah. the sequel thing for me, though. It's just such a wordy title for no reason it's so clunky with so many bits of exclamation bits of um, punctuation in it that aren't needed it reminds me of um michael jackson's album his well history but with the his His in capital so it's his story his story history past present and future book one so come on you've workshopped that too much there haven't you (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah uh okay okay i think are we done is that the roundup is that all finished for both of you? Yes, it is, yeah. Excellent, okay. Uh, right, on to our first song this week. And first up is this. Took my hand Touch my heart Held me close You were all Always there by my side Night and day Through it all Baby, come what may Swept away on a wave of emotion We're caught in the eye of the storm and whenever you smile, I can hardly believe that you're mine. Believe that you're mine. This love is unbreakable. It's unmistakable. And each time I look in your eyes, I know why. This love is untouchable I feel it my heart just can't deny Each time I look in your eyes Oh baby, I know why This love is unbreakable Okay, this is Unbreakable by Westlife released as the lead single from the group's compilation album entitled Unbreakable The Greatest Hits Volume 1. Unbreakable is Westlife's 13th single overall to be released in the UK and their 11th single to reach number one. It's not the last time we'll be discussing Westlife on this podcast. Unbreakable went straight in at number one as a brand new entry, knocking DJ Sammy off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week at number one, it sold 90,000 copies, beating competition from 
I'm Gonna Get You Good by Shania Twain, which got to number four. Work It by Missy Elliott, which got to number six. <sighs> Put the Middle on It by Danny Minogue, which got to number eight. And All Out of Love by H and Claire, which got to number ten. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Unbreakable dropped three places to number four. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 20 weeks, and the song was certified silver in the UK in January 2003. Silver? Only silver? Only wow. silver, yes. Only um, silver. Lizzie. Yeah. Uh, thoughts on Unbreakable by uh, Westlife? <clears throat> yeah, um haven't really got much left to say about them at this point. This song's not very good. I feel like if you've never heard it, you can just imagine literally any other Westlife song and you'll be close enough. Like, there's, there's no reason to go out of your way to hear this song. And I think because I have so little to say about it, I kind of wanted them to fill in the gaps because there's, yeah. for me, there's just nothing here. And so, I had to go out of my way a little bit and I I went and sought out their book from 2008 entitled Westlife, Our Story to see if I could glean anything about this particular song and the answer is no, I can't but I can give you a little glimpse into the world of Westlife in 2002 we've provided little glimpses of that ourselves and we figured, you know, let's have a look see if the grass is greener on the other side, on the Westlife side. You know it is, because they're Westlife, but... <laughs> so yeah, uh, let's just quote from the book here. <clears throat> Me and Shane are car mad, admits Nikki. We buy Top Marks magazine every week and look at all the supercars in there. When the money from Westlife started to come through, it was almost impossible not to start thinking about buying new cars. At first we had nice BMWs, that sort of thing, but inevitably, we eventually turned our attention to Ferraris. In 2002, after our second tour, I decided to take the plunge and bought a beautiful Ferrari 355F1. Shane had a gleaming black 550 and Brian, typical Brian, came back with a bright canary yellow one. We'd typical spent over £300,000 between the three of us. Cash! <laughs> I've been... Oh, fucking hell, it goes on. I'd been looking at getting a black Ferrari 360 at the same time as the lads too, says Kian. I phoned my mum to see if it fitted in the garage, but it didn't. It seemed like a good oh. excuse though. If you remember my dad's reaction when I bought the BMW, imagine if I'd driven home in a Ferrari. We all knew it made no financial sense whatsoever to buy a Ferrari, continues Nikki. We knew it was just flash, but we just wanted to have that ultimate lad's self-indulgence. We'd worked hard and earned the money, so it was great fun to just do it and not worry. It is a fond memory driving the 355 back to my mum's house and parking it next to my Jeep and BMW. You can say materialistic things aren't important, and my god, in the grand scheme, they aren't. Uh, parentheses, and I speak as a father. Ugh. Close parentheses. But as an ambitious and driven man in his early 20s, I was very proud. Like, if that's all you can glean from Westlife at this time, like, I, I start to resent them even more because it's just, like, of all the things to go out of your way and do when the big paycheck comes in, 
I feel like buying an expensive car is the biggest waste because the fact of the matter is you might have a nice expensive car but you've still got to drive at the legal speed limit like everyone else on the road and yeah. you've still got to pay car tax and it'll be a lot more expensive and you've still got to deal with all of the upkeep and everything like that and you best believe that people will want to break into that car if they see it out on the street so you can't leave it there it just like it boggles the mind that this is what they think you know the realities of fame and success should be and this is all they've got to show for it and so yeah, this that song little, um, go on. that little thing just of like mentioning that the garage was too small yeah you just buy her a bigger house being, you know, exactly. Maybe they yeah. did that in the end. Maybe they did that in the end. We, we, oh, they we, probably did. I'm, I'm we'll, not reading we'll need the to rest keep of the reading book. to find out. But, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe when we get to the next number one, I can try and fill in the gaps. But yeah, until then, this is rubbish. Yeah, it's, it's like it's not even a really a, like a proper anecdote for an autobiography either, is it? It's just like it's just showing off. I think they feel like it's a more interesting story than it is. It's like it's like. Think Mr. Burns' son in The Simpsons like, oh, and one time I saw a blimp. It's like, oh, remember that time we drove a car? Oh, yeah. Great story, yeah. boys. Good All five you, of you. Great. Okay. <laughs> um, Andy, how are you feeling about uh, Westlife and Unbreakable and all that? Yeah, I, I, I'm doing much the same as Lizzie did in that yeah. I have nothing to say anymore about Westlife. Well, I'll, I'll sum it up very briefly, is that this song is total rubbish. It's, mm-hmm. like, pretty much the same as every other Westlife song we've covered before. Um, I've got nothing left to say at all. So I thought, well, what if I kind of try and engage with the song a bit and sort of relate to what they're expressing, you know? Is there anything that I can express my love for which is unbreakable? And unmistakable, and I also was thinking as well. You know what? It's it's really hard to engage with that with Westlife because they are such a kind of corporate, produced by committee, schlocky, generic band. So you know, there's nothing unique about them. And I thought, well, I'm just going to use my time to ignore Westlife as the corporate product they are and talk about my unbreakable love for something else. Something local, which sadly has failed due to money issues, which is a local restaurant near mine called uh, V-Rev Vegan Diner in Manchester, Aww, which yeah. was a, a vegan burger place, which I've been there with you, haven't I, Rob? Um, yeah. That I've been there, like, I went there like 30 times, maybe more, me and my husband, that uh, we, we basically, we've both been vegan for years, and what they really understand there is that vegan people don't always just want healthy food. You know, we don't want to always sit there and eat a nice tabbouleh salad or a nice poke bowl. You know, sometimes we want to get a big, greasy, dirty, disgusting burger inside of us that's, like, full of fat and massive. And they really got that and made absolutely delicious food, covered the walls with um, really fun art that was, like, Simpsons stuff, music stuff, like 90s punk stuff on the walls. All the um, menu items were like puns on things from our childhood. It was the best place ever. Um, And it's closed down, sadly, last year. And when it closed down out of nowhere, I felt genuine grief. I shed an actual tear um, because I was so sad to lose it because we used to go there every couple of weeks. Like some big nights in my life started in there. Like, you know, it was the start of many a night out sometimes. And um, whenever I think of something that I just love so much that I will do anything to get back, 
I think of V-Rev, for which my love is unbreakable. And that's what I'm dedicating this segment to, because one meal that I had there is better than the entire output of Westlife. So, my love for V-Rev is unbreakable. Aww. Aww. Vegans miss it every day. I'm not vegan personally, or even vegetarian, but... It was just nice knowing it was there and that a lot of people I knew liked going there and I used to live very close to it and it was always nice to know that friends were a five minute walk away, as it were, at the time. Um, yeah, my my kind of... I realised as I was listening to Unbreakable through the week that my review of it would just be like a... Uh, kind of noise, but that's not great. Um, like you two, I have run out of things to say. I feel like you could take my previous Westlife review, which I think was the last one we did, was Queen of My Heart, I think. Oh, God, it was, yeah. Um, and apply that to Unbreakable. Just take out Queen of My Heart and put Unbreakable in its place. It does all the things that every Westlife song does. It's slow. It kind of encourages you to sway very, very slowly. And then there's a key change, and then it ends. And it's so annoying. That's about it. So, moving swiftly on, our second song this week is this. Too dirty to clean my act up. If you ain't dirty, you ain't here to party. Ladies, move. Gentlemen, move. Somebody ring me alone. Okay, this is Dirty by Christina Aguilera featuring Redman. Released as the lead single from her fourth studio album entitled Stripped, Dirty is Christina Aguilera's seventh single overall to be released in the UK and her third to reach number one after Genie in a Bottle and Lady Marmalade both reached the summit in 1999 and 2001 respectively. It's not the last time we'll be discussing Christina on this podcast. Dirty first entered the UK chart at number 81, before dropping out a week later. It then re-entered the chart and went straight to number 1, knocking Westlife off the top of the charts. It stayed at number 1 for two weeks. In its first week at number 1, it sold 74,000 copies, beating competition from Love on the Line by Blazing Squad, 
which got to number six. Stronger by Sugar Babes, which got to number seven. Come Into My World by Kylie Minogue, which got to number eight. Ugh. And The Scientist by Coldplay, which got to number ten. I've got to say, seven, eight, and ten there. Disappointing. As much as I actually quite like Dirty, it's disappointing that those three didn't quite get the justice they deserved. In its second week at the top, it sold 47,000 copies, beating competition from Don't Let Me Down by Will Young, which got to number two. Jenny from the Block by Jennifer Lopez, which got to number three. Alive by S Club 7, which got to number five. And Through the Rain by Mariah Carey, which got to number five. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Dirty fell two places to number three. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for just 10 weeks, which is a very short stay. However, the song endured and was eventually certified platinum in the UK in July 2019. So definitely a case of a song having a stronger legacy than its immediate impact. Um, Andy. Dirty by Christina Aguilera. How how are we feeling? Yeah, I just I just have to call you out first of all on your mispronunciation of the title. It's dirty, mm. <laughs> dirty. Yeah, kind of reminds me. Well, it's a bit of a thing at this time, isn't it? Because it reminds me of hot in here, which is pronounced here. well. It's yeah, spelled yeah. hot in hair, hot in hair, hot, hot in hair, hot in hair. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a bit weird, isn't it? So yeah. Good old Xtina. Um, I I, mm. I like Christina. Actually, I've got quite a lot of time for her. I think mm-hmm. she's she's one of those people who's got a very very strong voice, but she doesn't have much control, which bothers me. Like the key the key culprit to that, who I always point out, is Jessie J, who just drives me around the bend with the way <laughs> she just can't say a single note without going on a run um, with it. But Christina is quite similar, but she manages to just about maintain a level of, huh, that's an impressive voice, rather than, oh my god, you're annoying. Um, and this one, it's I, I think what really struck me about it is that this is quite out of character for her. What we kind of later will know is a Christina single, where it's usually quite a sort of accessible bop. Um, this isn't that at all, really. And the, the thing that I really didn't like about this song was the production which is what it says on the tin it is suitably dirty but it sounds really dirty it's like it just makes me feel like i've been drowned in mud it's like a proper kind of grimy grungy sound to that production which i think goes too far and is way over the top um because actually at the heart of this there is a really catchy nifty little pop song which I'm not saying that everything has to have clean all bells and whistles and everything. I, I, I get that. But I think they double down a little bit too far on the dirty theme. And it's it's quite a um, muddy sounding song because of that, which I think really spoils it. But that, I'm only pointing that out to the start because otherwise I actually really like this. I think Christina really kind of nails the vocals on this. I think those verses in particular are really, really catchy. You really want to dance to those. That really strong bass line coming through at the bottom, I think it's one of those songs that puts just as much attention into the verse as the chorus to kind of get you going. Uh, the bridges as well with that, oh, happening over and over again. You know, there's a lot built in to this song, which I really like. Um, shout out as well to another instance of dropping my cup of tea. 
Dan- um, singing with the whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Another one of those happening again, which I keep noticing every time they happen now. But yeah, um, I actually really like it in general. I like it as a song, and I feel like if it was performed live or something like that, it would really come to life, and I'd really love it, and that would really elevate it. As it is, I do like it, but it won't go much further than that because I think the production just really spoils it for me. But I feel like that might be quite a divisive opinion that others may not share. But to me, it just it just it 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 really soaks it up too much. So yeah, it's a thumbs up, but it could have been much better, I think. Yeah, uh, Lizzie, how about you for dirty? <laughs> yeah, I I pretty much entirely agree with Andy. I completely agree about the production in that it seems like. I mean, it's one thing for a song to be kind of loud, but it seems loud like, I don't know, they've turned all the knobs up (laughs) and there's just no space for anything to breathe. And so it's like, listening to it is quite oppressive. And maybe that's what they were aiming for, but I think it's also a side effect of a lot of music you get in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, where like the loudness wars were happening and like Californication and things like that, where it is just they turn everything up to 11 and so listening to it is still quite difficult but aside from that yeah i think it's a really good song i think we've got another example of like a big reinvention as well you know like we had um pink a couple of weeks ago where she had kind of wanted to brush off this image as like an r&b star with aguilera she was in like the Britney Spears kind of teen pop mould and I think she wanted to go in a more raw like heavy direction and I think this 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 does work but it's kind of I think by the time we next see Christina Aguilera it's like you don't really know where you stand because as as much as I, I really like the next song as well it's like it, it's kind of going from one extreme to another more on that later on in the episode by the way but um but yeah in terms of the song itself it's really instantly effective it just comes straight at you it's kind of unforgiving but it that's what it you know what it's kind of seeks out to do and it is it's something that sticks in the memory and also particularly when you pair it with that video where everything's like brown and grey and dingy and you know only about a year before like I say Christina Aguilera was in that like she was a teen pop star and now she's just right here in this gritty horrible world and yeah um I realise I'm kind of jabbering a bit but yeah, I do I do like this song, but God, I wish that production could have been toned down a little bit. Yeah, I think the loudness, that's yeah, that's a good point. That it's it kind of almost sounds like it's peaking sometimes, which it does. I'm not it sure does. if it's supposed to sound quite as loud as that. Peaking in the you know, the tech sense, not in the quality sense. It does sound like it's really kind of scratching and peaking at the top sometimes, which is really not not a nice thing to hear. Um Yeah. So that and, makes me wonder, do you think yeah. it's entirely deliberate or do you think they perhaps went a bit too far and, you know, it's just shoddy production? I think it's a bit of both, honestly. Because, like, Aguilera herself is quite a big singer as well. She's quite... Um, I don't want to say loud because that sounds like it's a bad thing, but she's one of those She's one of those big belter voices. Mm. And you kind of need a bit of 
room for that to I don't know because otherwise if you just put if you just kind of cram all of these elements into such a small space then it can get quite oppressive yeah I agree mm. yeah uh, with this, um, first things first, I do like this. Um, I think as you two have kind of covered, it's loud and it's exciting and it definitely shows off uh, Christina's range. It is boisterous and I suppose raw is probably the word as well. There's a degree of kind of nastiness and ruggedness and sexuality to this, which gives it a lot of personality. And I think crucially as well, at this point... Maybe Christine is the only pop artist that this song could have belonged to at the time. I can't think of anybody else who would have gone for something like this mm. and hit it. I think Pink could have done this. Pink maybe, but Pink was moving towards like more rocky stuff rather than towards club like club hip hoppy stuff. But I think Pink would probably have the pipes to cope. Yeah. Definitely. Um like you guys, um, the production is a bit of a weird thing for me, but I think it's kind of grown on me uh, as the week has gone on. Like speaking more compositionally and in terms of like the production and stuff, I kind of like all the harsh orchestral like stabs and all the thick drums and like the random shots of vocal harmony in the back that seem to come in at odd points, like the uh, like the things that you were mentioning before. Um, I also think Redman really brings it on his verse. Like, I think he's the perfect choice for this kind of song. Not only because it's inspired by a song of his, which was called Let's Get Dirty, um, mm-hmm. but because of the way that he launches into this. Um, the way that he launches into his verse might be my favourite moment in the song, and it made me wish that, like, maybe this was Redman's song and Christina was guesting on it or something like that, or something like that anyway. Um you know, I think at the at that time in hip hop, I think you'd probably get like Buster Rhymes would probably give this a good go, and Ice Cube would probably give this a good go, and he was only just making his name alongside uh, as one of like Outkast's affiliates at the time. But Killer Mike might have come in and given this a good go at the time. But there are very few rappers with this kind of like ferocity and power and speed that could have arrived on this in the same way and also have been fine to make like big commercial concessions and stuff like that at the time um so yeah i'm I'm really into like i'm into the vibe i'm into the performances and i'm sort of into the the production and stuff i think if i have any criticism i think it's slightly too long I think it needs refining. It feels like they had too many ideas to bring the song in. And then there mm-hmm. were too many ideas when it fades out. It just, it takes forever to come in and takes forever to come out as well. There are so many things like Redman sort of saying like, too dirty to clean my act up. And like, she's going, yeah, ladies, fellas or whatever like that. And then I feel like the song should start when Redman says, if you ain't dirty, then you ain't here to party. That's a great just just cut like the first 15 seconds they just they don't have the same impact as redman coming in um and like if you went dirty you ain't here to party and then that's a great choice that's a great choice to come in on and then like um then it really kicks you know everything kind of clicks into gear and everything kicks up a notch but then on the way out they repeat the chorus like three times and it's just christina ad-libbing in different ways and it's just just take one of the choruses off, bring the ad-libs in a bit earlier, you know, just take 20 seconds off at either end, and I think you get something quite special 
Um, it, it just, I think that the beginning and the end of the track is kind of representative of my issues with it in general, which is that it sounds kind of cluttered and busy and it sort of feels like it's stumbling over itself to cram in like so much stuff. Um, but Christina herself and Redman too, they both climb above whatever's happening around them. Um, and I think the the connection between the album release and the video and the single and stuff, it does all feel like an event, you know, a big pop event, like, you know, a, re, a rebrand. Everybody turn and look at this, like, oh, I imagine this was like, you know, a big special video premiere like they used to do on TV, where like, um, yeah, tune in this Saturday night for Christina Aguilera's brand new video, and like, they'll turn it into like a huge event, which is probably why it's five minutes long. Um, cause they, you know, they probably play it a couple of times, like repeat it. And then they'd be like getting it requested on like total request live and, and things mm -hmm. like that. So yeah, I think, um, I don't know. I've gone back and forth on whether I'd actually put this into the vault or not. And I think now I've talked about it, I've decided against it, but it's bloody close. It is really yeah. close. Um, I think that it's this really fun, rambunctious, like incident in pop, but just, listening to it now i'm like i'm into the charisma the performances the talent everything but i just feel like they went a bit too overboard it just feels like they've gone a bit like like a cartoon character like you know when they start running and they do the like with the with the legs turning into a cloud <laughs> of dust it feels a little bit like that bit like taz basically it's just a shame i think really yeah but, yeah definitely quick question on this one so I sometimes think about Christina that, like, although she's been a consistently big star for, well, maybe not so much these days, but for about 10 years she was a consistently big star, and I thought she doesn't really have a signature song, though. I think if she was to have one, I think it would be this, but I'm not really sure. Like, do you think this is, if you went to see Christina live, like, would you expect this to be the encore? Because I don't really know, like, what her big signature hit is. It could beautiful, be a few things. Surely. Beautiful. Or fighter as well, maybe. Mm. There's, there's I, a couple mm. it could be, but it could be this. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I feel like this is the one that starts off the show and beautiful is the big one that she goes out on. This would yeah. make a really good opener thinking about it. Actually, yeah, that would it's sort a big of, hype song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is basically just all hype, this. Yeah, yeah. Um... There are songs coming up, actually, in future years that are all hype that I prefer. I think we've got one next year that's coming. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting to hear Christina tackling um, something like this. But I'm kind of surprised that, like, her next number one is her last. We, 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 we do Beautiful, and then that's it. She doesn't... The closest I think she gets is, like, Moves Like Jagger. I imagine like she has a yeah. lot of near misses, I would imagine. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it'd be interesting to see her come up. Right, okay. Um, third up, and the last song this week is this. If you're not the one, then why does my soul feel glad today? If you're not the one, then why does my hand fit yours this way? If you are not mine, then why does your heart return my call? If you are not mine, would I have the strength to stand at all? I never know what the future 
Okay, this is If You're Not The One by Daniel Bedingfield. Released as the third single from his debut studio album entitled Gotta Get Through This, If You're Not The One is Daniel Bedingfield's third single overall to be released in the UK and his second single to reach number one after Gotta Get Through This reached the summit in 2001. It's not the last time we'll be discussing Daniel Bedingfield on this podcast. If You're Not The One went straight in at number one as a brand new entry, knocking Christina Aguilera off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for just the one week. In its first and only week at number one, it sold 75,000 copies, beating competition from Last Goodbye by Atomic Kitten, which got to number two, We've Got Tonight by Ronan Keating and Lulu, which got to number three. Uh, Rushes by Darius, which got to number five. And United States of Whatever by Liam Lynch, which got to number ten. I can't believe that charted so high. Um, I've got a fact about that, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure it is the shortest song to have ever charted. Or it was, anyway, at the time. Yeah, it's only about a minute and a half, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know a shorter one that also took that record. So maybe at the time it was, but... Spider Pig from the Simpsons movie, which was about forty seconds, that made the chart. So maybe really? that took the chart. Maybe that took the title from it. That's that's one of the oh, most wow. useless facts I know, and I can't believe I just had a really good opportunity <laughs> to wheel it out. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, when it was knocked off the top of the charts, if you're not the one, it fell two places to number three. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 28 weeks, and it was eventually certified platinum in the UK in August 2014. So, this was big. Like, this stuck around. This clearly endured for a very, very long time. Uh, Lizzie, uh, if you're not the one, uh, how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, I have a kind of question to lead into this, actually. Um, have either of you ever bought or listened to an album based off one song and then been very disappointed to find out that the rest of the album isn't like that. Yes. Oh my god, yes. Can I give you Believe by Cher? Yeah. Yeah. Terrible. That, that's a good answer. Yeah, I have a feeling actually. I didn't buy this album, but I did listen to it when I was a kid. And I remember oh, right. being really attached to James Dean because that was the closest that got to gotta get. I think he got to gotta get through this. Whereas the rest of it, as you said, and are implying, yeah, it's this. So yeah, carry on. Yeah, yeah. I just I love the thought of like proper garage heads going out to buy this in summer two thousand two, thinking, oh yeah, here it is, finally. <laughs> and yeah, just getting this. I, I can imagine it's like people who are. Avril 14th by Aphex when it's like I've got to pick up this Drugs <laughs> album <laughs> just yeah. like oh god it's like four sides of non-stop acid techno great <laughs> but um but yeah uh, I'm I'm not really on board with this like it, as far as breakup songs go this is far from the worst we'll cover on this podcast but 
there's something about this which I find very difficult to love. Like, I don't think it's fair to accuse Beddingfield of, like, selling out after the success of Gotta Get Through This, but he doesn't do himself any favours by citing Westlife as his main inspiration when writing this song. And, you know, in interviews, he kind of talks about, like, um, I mean, I can quote him, actually, Commercialism, sappy lyrics and meek tunes are the things I hate most in the universe, <laughs> but I'm not sure even Bob Dylan could get record company interest without hooks these days. It's a different age. You need to go some kind of populist route. So about three years ago, I sat down with a Westlife song and tried to write something similar. And like, I'm sure there are people out there who are saying, well, it's not really fair to compare this to Gotta Get Through This, but it is on the same album. And I think even if, like, so aiming for Westlife is one thing, but even if you had, had kind of admitted that you liked those sort of 90s slow jams, like, I find this quite similar to something like All My Life by Casey and Jojo, or maybe, like, End of the Road by, who was that? Was that Boys to Men? Boys that to was Men, Boys yeah. to Men, yeah. Yeah, those kind of, like, 90s soft ballads, which is fine. I think this one, it almost tries to do a bit too much. Like I've I've said to you this week in that the falsetto bit, which I think is what a lot of people remember this song for, is so disconnected from the rest of the song and doesn't seem to actually fit in with what's being said. It's almost just there as if to say like, hey, look what I can do. I can go into this range. I bet you can't. And it's like just nothing um and I, I don't find this sort of thing that romantic either i think in his mind or maybe in natasha beddingfield's mind he thinks it's just something that oh yeah women will love this because it's all soft and gooey but i don't know not really it just seems a bit desperate it's like i don't know a puppy singing to me and I, I don't really get on board with that so yeah as, as much as there's worse breakup songs than this to come and there's there's obviously much better breakup songs than this to come as well and this kind of ranks on the lower end I think Hmm, uh, Andy if you're not the one Yeah, this is one of those where I saw the title when I was looking at the list of what songs were coming up and I thought, oh yeah, that's alright yeah. and I listened to it once and I was like yeah, it's okay and the more I've listen to it and the more I've thought about it I'm like actually no no this mm. this gone down a couple of pegs um in my view first of all that I'm really interested by that comment from Beddingfield that you've just said there Lizzie about you know why he wrote the song I, I really don't like that attitude that's a really snobbish kind of attitude to have of like oh yeah well you you know I, I hate this kind of stuff but you've got to get commercial and do it it's like well you know you're doing it yourself, so you can't you can't look down on everybody else when you're doing exactly what they are. You know, I just exactly yeah. I think that's a really pretentious attitude to have, to be honest. So I don't like that. And there is a general air in this song of you know worthiness and doing things because they're technically impressive and doing things because they're artsy rather than you know just making a good song. There's just no I... reason for that falsetto to be in there. At all. Can I just interject a second? I want to say, if you want pretentious, just wait till you hear the liner notes, but I'll save it until <laughs> after you've both done. Well, he's, he is, like, 
a pretentious person. Like he had that thing, which I think I've mentioned yes. before, that he insisted on recording songs fully naked because he wanted to be like at one with himself. Which is just <laughs> come on, just terrible behaviour. Um, but yeah, he 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 kind of comes across as that kind of person. I think that bleeds through this song that there is far too much kind of stuff that's in there, not because it aids the song, but because it helps him come across more as a serious artist, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you can't have it both ways, Daniel. You can either do a nice Westlife-style ballad or you can do something that really exercises you vocally and really is impressive and, you know, you can't really do both. I don't I don't think that they were... And so you get this unholy marriage of the two where even in a music... It's not just the the pitch, even in a just kind of basic songwriting sense, they just don't go together because almost every no. line in both the verse and the chorus has this kind of on the beat and then triplet structure where it's like, I don't want to run away, but I can't take it. So it's like, ba, 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 ba. Like every line has that kind of rhythm. And then it's just, is there any way that I... Where it's just suddenly really slow and like every syllable is so much longer than all the ones that have come before. That line just doesn't fit with all of the others. Like, the cadence is just wrong compared to all of the others. It's just, oh, it should be scrubbed from the song. It's so weird. But then, on the other hand, that's the gimmick of the song. Like, that, I have no doubt that that's why this song took off, because of that big high bit. Because everybody notices that straight away. Like, whoa, that's a high note. It's a, it's a gimmick, and it's a silly gimmick, but it works, and it sells the song. And so if you take that out, all you've got is something very generic, really. So I'm kind of in this difficult halfway house, really, where it's like, I don't think the falsetto fits with the song at all. But also, if you took it out, you wouldn't have much to chew over here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, so it puts puts it, put it in sort of difficult spot here. It's just... The, the kind of level of building up to that falsetto as well and, you know, the sincerity, the over-sincerity, the earnestness of it is what really kind of makes me cringe. There's that bit before the final chorus where the, you know, spend my life with... And he does it like three, four times as the strings behind him get higher and higher and his voice gets higher and higher as well. And I just... <laughs> I wonder how long it's going to keep going where, like, you'll just keep, you know, building up to this chorus with the... Spend my life with... You know, you don't know how high he's going to go. Where at the end, he'll only be audible by dogs. You know, it's just... It's silly, really. It's really silly. But I've trashed it enough. And actually, I do think that there is a certain amount of, you know, skill to the song that actually is, it, it, it is quite memorable. That, you know, you hear about five seconds of this song and you've got it straight away. I think one thing that really came across from Gotta Get Through This is that he actually is a very good songwriter and actually mm. really knows how to deliver a hit. And, you know, he's delivered on the brief here of do a big ballad that has commercial appeal. It obviously does. It's a massive hit. And I give him credit for that, that actually it is a good, solid well-written pop song, pop ballad, other than the falsetto, which doesn't need to be in there at all. Um, yeah, it is actually okay. It's just it's just a real mess of ideas. Um, yeah, it's just okay. It's just okay. The, the only other comment I wanted to make about not just this, but Westlife, like, do you, do you ever have an episode of this where you kind of feel the presence of another artist who isn't actually in the episode, who's just sort of hanging over like a ghost. In this and Unbreakable by Westlife, 
I'm really kind of feeling the presence of Enrique Iglesias. Like, it feels like Hero <laughs> yeah. has been a big inspiration for both of these songs. I can easily imagine both of these songs being given to him with that really over-the-top, over-romantic, yearning quality that you get from Hero. I think that's really prominent. It, they use the same sort of guitar in Unbreakable, and in this, the kind of emphasis, emotional emphasis, is the same. I feel like he, Enrique is really hanging over this week, even though he's not here. So that's the only other observation I would have. But um, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Um, I hate the falsetto, but again, it's the most memorable thing about the song, so I'm not going to dick on it too much. It's all right, yeah. And final, final thought um, is that I think Daniel Benningfield is one of those rare artists on this show who I think his trajectory of the three number one singles is a clear, steady, downwards trajectory. (laughs) That the first, gotta get through this, we all agreed, was quite good it's actually a really good song this is okay and then his third number one i think is absolute rubbish so we're we're in the middle right now we're in the second part of the trilogy and we'll come back to that next year yeah <laughs> i just wanted to say you've summed it up really well it's the combination of like the the big instrumentation and the crystal clear perfect production and the lyrics that sound like they were written by a 12-year-old who had just mm. been dumped after going to watch Johnny English at the cinema. I promise this didn't happen to me. <laughs> and it, it's, it's like you've got to do one or the other. You either go big and you just like go ham with it or you kind of strip it down and make it... Because, you know, we've, we've had that quality with like Atomic Kitten where it is basic and it is sort of almost juvenile, but it kind of works in its favour. Yeah. Mm. And this just tries to do both and comes off with neither. Yeah, because I actually like the lyrical concept of the song, this idea that I thought you were the one, and if you're not the one, then why do I feel like this? Why do I feel like that? I actually like that as a concept, but it's done in such a cheesy, maudlin way. But you're right, it's, it does feel like it's written by a 12-year-old. The lyrics are like the feel like pure shit, just miss her so much, you know. So. Yeah, that, that's like fine. Um, there's another number one we come to in a couple of years, which I think is a really good example of how you can take that honesty and turn it into something quite beautiful. But this just, again, it tries it tries to do too much and just falls a bit flat. Yeah. Um, Andy, wasn't there also something about Miranda that you wanted to mention? There was, yeah. So my main memory that I always think of with this song, I don't know if we're going to use the clip, but if not, I'll just sort of demonstrate it myself, is um, a clip from Miranda, which I know a lot of people don't really like that show because it's quite broad comedy and stuff, but there's this bit that I find is very funny where Miranda Hart does this song on karaoke while drunk and going through a breakup, and she tries to hit the high note, oversells it because she has to leap so high to get to it, and halfway through the high note she just goes, oh, it's too high, Daniel, and it's unnaturally high for a man. And it always just makes me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) It's very much like, why do birds? Exactly like that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, With this, I didn't expect to feel the way I do about it. Um, This is getting slightly more than a mild thumbs up from me. Ah, Um, It veers awfully close to cribbing too much from the Westlife slash Enrique hymn sheet. And I wish it leaned more into the trip hop 
down-tempo vibe that's there. But I think this is nicely, carefully composed and sort of quite sensitively performed. I think it understands that compositional development and volume are two different things. Each little section is slightly rephrased, has something new to introduce whenever you go back to it. The melodies are delicate, um, the performance is smooth and appropriate. I think um, there are moments though where I think it's written, it's overwritten. Like you were saying, Andy, that moment, I think it's at either at the end of the second verse or at the end of the bridge where it, that strange build where it cannot find a place to land before lifting off again. Yeah. Where it keeps mm -hmm. resting on a cadence and then going on a little bit further. And then it knocks the cadence off to so you. Like, he can't go to the chorus from here. So then he does another one and you think, ah, there's now he's going to go to the chorus. And then he goes... I hope I love you all my life. And I'm like, start the second <laughs> chorus. Just get there. Just do it. It, it, it. Oh, God, at least two of those are superfluous. They're just so, so pointless. And it's really, really annoying. And it just, yeah. I think also as well about Daniel Bedingfield being very open about the fact that um, he kind of wrote this just to sell records, um, coming at it like, oh, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that to play it in this game. And so, yeah, I think, you know, fair enough. Acknowledging that is fine, but kind of writing it and sort of coming at it from a kind of disdainful, obligatory point of view. Like, I don't know, I always think of um, Sears' tweet from about 10 years ago, maybe a little closer than that, maybe only about eight years ago, where she just tweets, in bed writing another mediocre smash... <laughs> and I just I, I think there are ways to approach it, and I think uh, fine. He comes across like a bit of a knobhead, but like he sort of plays the part. And speaking of playing parts, I kind of hope that he is playing a part in this song because if he really means everything he's saying, I totally understand the perspective that like you know like you were saying, Andy, where it's like everything about us makes sense to me, but it doesn't make sense to you. But if we're not supposed to be together, then why am I feeling all of these things? And like, yeah, it makes total sense, but it just it comes across a bit stalkerish. I don't think yeah. he has as I don't think he has enough charm as no. a singer to pull no. this off convincingly. Um, and it all ends up sounding a bit, you know, like oh come on, mate, like you know, get over it. Like yeah, you know, so, so many other songs. fish in the sea. So many songs like this do that, don't they? Like it's such a fine line to tread. Where it's like, when does love become obsession? And when are you doing it in the form of a very heartfelt ballad where you're putting yourself out there? It's really hard to find that line. And this is, yeah, a good example of a song that somewhat crosses that line. Yeah. 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 And it's like, for you, it's just a song. But for someone listening to it, it might be their reality. And that's mm. not healthy. Yeah, yeah, it can be very uncomfortable. But I think what he lacks in charm, he makes up for in ability. And I think that one high note, well, the three high notes, because he does it three times, but like, it sounds silly. And I totally agree with your criticism, Andy, that like, if you were to take this out of the song, what is there to remember years later? But it is in there. Like, that is the hook. Like, that, that's the thing that he knows will... I mean, we're talking four years later. Shane Ward tries this. 
so many times and doesn't get the same results with it. I'm thinking of um, Breathless that he does, where before the final chorus, they do the, so I'll try every day of my life. And then he goes, ah! And then he goes, ah! <laughs> and he goes further and further up. And it feels like this echoes forward about four or five years. I think they tried to turn Shane Ward into a bit of a Daniel Bedingfield after that first number one because he realized, I think they realized, oh, he's got this falsetto. Oh, we didn't know he had this. And No Promises, I think, also does it as well, which was his follow-up. Because mm. that, that chorus goes, um, Now I need to hold you tight. I just want to die in your... Uh, but obviously with falsetto an octave higher and I feel like they tried to do the same thing and so I think that silly high note that Daniel Bedingfield does in this it is influential in a weird way not in a good way it doesn't influence good things but it's there and it is the bit in the song that everybody remembers I think and apart from the music video as well where I think everybody just kind of remembers it for like repeated images of Daniel Bedingfield looking very sad into the camera, just sort of like going, oh. I, I think oh. you could make a case for like saying that this helped the falsetto comeback. Like, give it a couple mm. of years, we get Mika. Yeah. Yeah, Mika. Um, I also Sam think, Smith as well. Yeah, and I was also thinking as well, in between those two, um, I would say he's probably more famous than the band he's in, but Ryan Tedder from One Republic, that was, you know, his falsetto Ooh, yeah, was yeah, a yeah. defining feature of Apologise uh, as well. So maybe there's more to this than I think, but yeah, it's, I think there's enough to like, but there's lots of problems. There's lots of problems, but there's enough to like. That's where I kind of settle on uh, If You're Not The One. Do we have anything more to say about any of the songs that have been put forward this week for consideration. Can, can I leave the listeners with um, some of the liner notes from Daniel Bedingfield's <laughs> album, Gotta Get Through This? Yes. Okay, so, quote from Daniel Bedingfield. The blazing beauty of a tree. <laughs> or, or the I've already gone. Calm. I've already gone. <laughs> okay. The blazing beauty of a tree or the magnificent calm of the sky... Our treasures are obscured and overshadowed, enveloped, swallowed by the meaningless dirge, the cry of oppression, the hopeless song of confused faces. I often find myself swept downstream by the songs awful, spelt with an E, powerful power humming along to its prevailing top line, pain. But I also seek to express the whole journey. These brief moments of sight, these points of clarity, these expressions of hope, deliverance, and the upward struggle of the searching soul. I point with my broken fingers towards the only safety I know. Why are your fingers broken? <laughs> Great, greater love hath no man than he. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, dear. oh, wow, Daniel. That was... Oh, my gosh. I, too, own a thesaurus, so thanks for that, yeah. Thus spake Bedingfield. <laughs> no way. He says that. No, he doesn't. Oh, okay. no. <laughs> I couldn't have believed that, though. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I feel kind of like, oh, he's so sincere. 
but also sort of not. Like, it just feels like one of those things where it's like, I don't want to laugh too much because, like, what if he really means it? Like, that sort of thing. But, like, <laughs> it just feels like he doesn't mean it, and it just feels like he's so pretentious at the same time. But It's, it's interesting to compare him to his sister, Natasha, who is, like... She has a similar but alternative kind of vibe where she also comes across as someone who wants to be very worthy and serious, but also she's, like, totally fake. So yeah. I wonder yeah. if Daniel was secretly kind of the same. Yeah, More I mean, on that in the future episode. Um, yeah. What are those lyrics from these words? It's a red spire, Shelley and Keats residing over a hit heartbeat. So it's like... <laughs> okay, you uh, yeah. read a lot of poetry, do you? I I'll just see. never get over the fact that she didn't write that song. That's just remarkable. Um, <laughs> yeah, she had five co-writers. So, oh, we'll discuss that. Uh, definitely discuss it yeah. at a later date because it does get to number one. Okay, so pie hole and vault inductions, unbreakable by Westlife. Is that going in the pie hole or the vault for anyone? Oh, just—it's definitely going in one of them. Straight, <laughs> straight into the pie hole, hundred percent. It's not even yes. the best song I can think of with the word "unbreakable" in it, because the theme tune to "Unbreakable" Kimmy Schmidt is better, uh, put together <laughs> by the guys who did "Auto Tune the News." That's better. Go listen to that instead. Yeah, I'm also putting it in the pie hole. Mm-hmm. So that's three. I think unanimous. Yeah, yep. unanimous. Yeah. Okay. Um, Dirty by Christina Aguilera and Redman. No. Not quite, but it's very close to the vault. Yeah, very close, close to the vault for me too. A little yeah. bit off. Yeah, I know, but also as well, I, I don't know if our listeners would really be interested, but I think uh, what the album and Dare is a Dark Side, uh, I've been listening to those two albums a lot like in the past month or so, just in, t- in anticipation of this, and they're both excellent. They're both great. Um, if You're Not The One by Daniel Bedingfield, is that going up or down for anyone? No, neither for me. No, not quite. It's not that bad, but Mm. it's not that good either. (laughs) Yeah, not for me either. Um, That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. When we come back, uh, we'll be covering the period between the 8th of December through to the 22nd of December. So the Christmas number one was named Christmas number one. Awfully close to the big day. Um, I think everything will run as normal. I'm away but we're going to try and get the episode out and andy you're also away i am yes so yeah we'll try and get the episode out as normal but if not that's why (laughs) we have a a parent's note to explain our absence just in case we can't get the episode out (laughs) and i'll be right here just as ever (laughs) yeah lizzie you're doing it solo next week um yeah yeah putting it all on you you can Guess what our opinions would be as well. <laughs> Fill an another hour and 15 minutes, why don't you? <laughs> yeah, another edition of uh, Born to Runner Up, maybe. I love Born to Runner Up. Yeah. You definitely should do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe I will. Okay. <laughs> All right, then. So we'll see you next time. Hopefully next week, whenever that may be. We'll see you later. Bye. See ya. Bye.